I am going to try to tackle this whole chapter today. <laughs> I speak it, and so therefore it will happen. Um, <laughs> we'll see. You might be here for like till two o'clock. Oh, man, there's just some chapters. There's some sections of Romans where it makes sense to go through it all together because it's talking about the same thing, the way that Paul's breaking it down. And as I mentioned last time, I'm, I want to take the time to define some words that we're going to see used in, in, in the text we're in, because I want to make sure that we all understand what these words mean. We, we read these things often in scripture, but sometimes I don't think we understand the magnitude of them. So the word I want to talk about today is judgment. And the definition I want to give you, which I think it's a di- dictionary definition, but I think it's a really good one for what judgment is, is it's a penalty or punishment that it has been determined one deserves for committing a crime or an, an offense. In, in the society we live in, um, if you're found guilty of breaking the law, there often is a predetermined judgment we will face, all right? For instance, like a speeding ticket. Typically, there's an amount of money associated with every mile you're, you're going over the speed limit. So if you get pulled over and found guilty, you know, you, you pay a certain predetermined fine. Now, the flip side of it is if that doesn't happen, then usually you have to go before a judge who's going to be the one that judges and determines that punishment or penalty that whatever crime you're found guilty of deserves, okay? And whereas the judgment we receive in this world might not always be right or justified because sometimes it's impossible to know all the facts, sometimes they're not presented accurately or because corruption does exist, because it's people that are doing the judging and and nobody's perfect. God's judgment in the Bible is always referred to as being righteous, which just basically means that it's always right. And only God's judgment truly can be always right because God is the only one that knows all things. Nothing slips his mind. He even knows your innermost motives or thoughts. Okay, so that's why his judgment is always just just, and it's always fair. So whenever we see the Bible talking about God's judgment, we can know those things about it, all right? And the reason I wanted to just talk about that, because in today's text, that's kind of the main thing that Paul's talking about. He's given us these principles surrounding God's judgment of the sin of mankind, all right? And a couple of weeks ago, if you guys were with us, we went through Romans 1, 18 through 32. We went through the second half, finished Romans 1, and we discussed the wrath or extreme anger of God that he has towards our sin. And we saw Paul explain how God has given us all the proof we need that he's real in his creation. And as such, humanity has no excuses to not know that he's real, to not pursue him and in, in, in his will for them for us in, his, in our lives, but still some have chosen to either ignore or deny the existence of God, instead choosing to worship his creation instead of the creator itself, just disregarding him completely, or they choose to worship their own man-made versions of God or what the Bible would call idols, and that can be a whole bunch of things. And as a result of removing God from their lives, this world as a whole has chosen to follow after their own desires instead of God's or their own will instead of God's will, which is the reason for all of the destructive and harmful behavior we see in the world today and throughout all of history, sin or 
disobedience to God always leading to harm in our lives and the lives of others. And as such, God is more than justified in being angry at our sin. So in Romans 1, we see Paul addressing those that basically refuse to glorify God or what the Jews at this time would refer to as a pagan. And the Jews would absolutely agree with Romans 1. They would agree with what Paul's saying. They would sit there and say that, yeah, those unrighteous people that deny the existence of God, they're getting what they deserve. They deserve for God to be angry at them. But the problem the Jews weren't acknowledging or what they weren't aware of is that they were just as guilty of sin in their own lives is the people that were denying God. Even though they acknowledged God, they still had sin in their lives. It might not have looked the same as the pagans, but they still were disobeying God in different instances of their lives. If not in their flesh, most certainly by their spirit of thinking that they were better than other people because of something they did externally in their lives or by their own works or actions. And so Romans 1 Paul's dealing with a person that denies God completely. Romans 2, who we're gonna see him deal with are the self-righteous person or the person who would acknowledge God, but at the same time somehow think they deserve his mercy because of the way they act or things they do in their lives. They don't understand that it's by grace through faith and faith alone, but somehow I am better than other people because of things that I do. All right, this is who he's kind of addressing. It's important to get that before we start getting into it, all right? So we're gonna start at the very beginning, go through this whole thing. Let me pray first, and then we'll start breaking it down. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, Lord, these are great truths for us. Even if we've already heard these things and know them to be reminded of, Lord, because how easy is it for me to fall into that mindset of thinking that somehow I'm better than other people, other believers, or even unbelievers because of the, the things I'm doing according to your word when you've made it very clear that there's nothing I could do to better myself with you because what righteousness demands is that I'm completely perfect. And you require that perfection to have a relationship with me because as a just God, you can't be in the presence of any sin without dealing with it justly, with judgment and wrath. And so because I couldn't be completely righteous, there was nothing I could do to make myself right with you. And you did everything through sending your son to die in my place for my sin, to pay the just price so that I could be completely forgiven of it and receive his righteousness. That's what you've done for us. And so as we go through your word today, may we remind, be reminded of how unworthy we are to receive the free gift of salvation that's been given to us, but how grateful we should be for what it is that you've done because it is indeed very great. You saved us when we could never have saved ourselves. And may that give us the right mindset in the way that we look at others in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in chapter two, verse one, it says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So, as I already mentioned, Paul's addressing the person here that heard what he said in Romans 1 and said, yeah, those type of people, they deserve judgment. They deserve wrath. I'm so glad I'm not that type of person, all right? The Jews struggled with this, the self-righteousness. The Greek word used here in these verses for judge, carrying the idea of somebody judging someone in a condemning way or basically passing judgment on someone's actions and determining, yep, they deserve to be punished for those. They are not a good person. They're, they're like, I'm nowhere near them, just kind of looking at somebody in that wrong way. Now, that's not our job to do. The Bible says that's God's job to do, to, to justly judge Or as verse two says, he's the only one that can rightly do it because he's the only one that truly knows people's hearts and their motives, right? Because we just see external things and external things don't always tell the whole story, but he knows all things. So he's the only one that rightly can do that. Now, whereas we aren't called to judge people in a condemning way or to make like decisions about the punishment they deserve, we are called to make judgments for identification purposes. Or if we see something wrong in somebody's life, according to God's word, we are called to acknowledge that and call that out with the heart of caring for that person, knowing that if they have wrong, they have wrong things in their lives, they have sin according to God's word, that ultimately that's gonna lead to harm to them and to other people. All right, let me give you an example. Let's say I have a daughter. I don't, I have four boys, praise the Lord. Um, but let's say I did for this reason, okay? No, 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 no fits here. I'm just glad that I don't have to deal with ever the situation. Let's say I had a daughter and a guy shows up to pick her up for a date, all right? Opens the car door, bunch of beer cans fall out. Gets out, reeks of alcohol acting totally belligerent and drunk. Now, I would be justified in making an identifying judgment. This guy shouldn't be driving. He sure as heck is not taking my daughter out on a date, all right? Because he's not in a good place, because he needs help, all right? That would be the the just identifying judgment. But self-righteously condemning him for his sin or thinking that I'm better than him in some way would be a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because what the gospel tells me is that apart from Jesus, we're all equally wretched. There is none better than anyone. And with Jesus, we're all equally righteous, completely righteous. There's no scales, all right? So I might not be guilty of being an alcoholic, but I am surely guilty of committing sin. It just looks different in my life. And at the end of the day, we both need the same help and that's Jesus, all right? So that's the proper way to look. And as Paul says in verse one, if I judge others in a condemning way, I condemn myself because I practice the very same things. Maybe not, they don't look identically the same, but they're the same in the fact that I disobey God according to his word in, in, in other areas, okay? 
And as such, my sin deserves the same judgment as anyone else's, as Paul points out in verse three. Jesus warning us about having that self-righteous attitude in Luke 18, 19 through 14. He says, he's telling a parable. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Basically, they had confidence in how they were living their life, things that they were doing, and looked down upon others who weren't doing those same things, okay? And he goes on to say in verse 10, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank God that I'm not like these other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a 10th of my income. So his, his, his hope is in his um, religious actions. Like in essence, he's like, these things that I'm doing that these other people aren't doing, they make me better with God than these other people. All right, and it goes on in verse 13, it says, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I'm a sinner. See, that guy realized that it don't matter what I do, I deserve judgment. If the only way I could ever be saved is by God's mercy, and that's what I'm praying for. Lord, be merciful to me. He goes on to verse 14 and it says, I tell you the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we need to take heed of this warning, brothers and sisters, because even as believers, we can be guilty of having the same type of attitude toward other people, whether it be unbelievers or other Christians in thinking that we're better than them based off of our works. Even though theologically we might say like, no, I get it, I'm saved by grace, but we don't act that way sometimes. Ways I've seen this, I see this with Christians that sometimes say this very statement that's full of hypocrisy and say, oh, I go to church, but it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. And in in, in basically saying like, I, I'm not gonna go there because there's a bunch of sinners that are there. Well, I hate to break it to you, but as soon as you walk in the door, you just added another sinner. It's like, this is where we're supposed to go. You're not better than anyone else. This is what we all need. We come here to be with Jesus. Or sometimes you see people that like throw stones at other believers. Again, we're not talking about identifying blatant sin. Yes, we do that with grace, truth and grace, but they do it in such a way of like, oh, I'm above that. I never commit that sin. I can't believe that person did that. This idea of thinking that they're better. And it's like, that's not the gospel. You're misunderstanding grace. Or sometimes I even see this with pastors. It's sad. There's some pastors that I've listened to for a long time and I hear the way they teach and there is an arrogance and how they're saying things that are non-essential things. I mean, they're just saying like, this church doesn't worship the way we do, or this church believes different eschatology. And they speak in such a way that you're a lesser of a Christian because you don't agree with the same things as them. I'm like, there is no lesser of a Christian. That's not what we wanna convey because God doesn't act that way. God doesn't see it that way. And so we gotta be very careful of those things, all right? That's something I'm praying often. And I've had to repent of when people have called me out and said, you know what, the way you said that, 
sounded pretty arrogant. It sounded like you were saying that you, you know, like you think you're better because of this or whatever. And like, don't, I don't want to ever sound that way. We don't want to convey that. And as Paul says here, thinking that we're better than others because their actions of what they say or do, you, you condemn yourself because you're just as guilty of sin in your own lives. Maybe not the same sin, but other sin that God has had to forgive you of. So we don't wanna have that attitude. He goes on in verse four and he says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So in verse four, Paul points out three specific characteristics about God through which he shows us his kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance, all right? And that's key. Again, instead of leading us into, he's not trying to lead us into this prideful attitude of thinking we're better than other people, but he's trying to lead you into this heart of repentance. Let me define what that is in case you don't know. That word repent means to have a sincere regret or remorse about something. And repentance is actually the, the action, like it's a verb of repenting. So in the context of God's word, repentance means for somebody to have a sincere regret or remorse about their sin so as to not wanna do it anymore. Because basically what you've done is you've acknowledged God and you've acknowledged that what his word says is true, that the sin is harmful for you. So you don't wanna do it anymore and you turn from that sin and you turn towards God to help you with it, all right? That's repentance. The world kind of looks at that word is with a negative idea, but that's not, it's not negative at all. It means that you're choosing to turn from a life of harming yourself and others who sin to a new life of living with and for God in his good, pleasing, and perfect will for you, all right? That's a good thing. And the three characteristics of God that should make us want to repent of our sin, according to Paul in verse four, are first his kindness, some of your translations probably say goodness because God has been kind to us in that he has not judged us even though we are guilty of past sin in our lives. So first his kindness, second his forbearance, which means patient self-control or restraint or tolerance. So God has been kind to us and not judging us, but he's also being kind to us in that he's presently restraining himself from judging us at this very moment, even though we're guilty of sin presently. So first is kindness, second is forbearance. Third, it's his patience, or as some of your translations say, long suffering, because God is also showing kindness to us in that he knows we will sin in the future, yet he still holds back his righteous judgment against you and me. And these attributes of God's character are riches, as Paul says in verse four, or they should be greatly valued by us knowing who God is. Typically, the greater the importance of a person, the greater of a crime that is being committed against them when somebody does an offense against them. Would you agree with me? If somebody commits a crime against the uh, president of the United States, it's considered a pretty big, grievous crime, right? Well, who's greater than God? Nobody. So any offenses committed against God, which is what sin is, are the greatest crimes of all. Would you not agree? Yet, instead of judging us as we deserve or showing us his wrath, he shows us mercy. 
Sometimes leniency is shown in this world because it isn't always possible to know all the facts, right? They don't have the full story, so they can't prosecute. They can't put a judgment without knowing what they consider all the facts. But here's the thing, God's, God's omniscient. He knows all the, uh, everything. He has all the facts about our sin. And so therefore he has every right to justly judge us, but yet he chooses to show mercy. Sometimes offenses aren't dealt with in this world because people don't always have the power to ensure justice is enforced, but God's all powerful. He can easily enforce the judgment that's deserved for any offense that's been committed in this world, yet he still chooses to show us mercy. These truths in knowing that God does not give us what we deserve, even though he has every right to and he has the ability to, but instead chooses to show us kindness should make us eagerly turn from our sin to him to be forgiven of and freed from it. And here's the thing we got to remember, God is never going to make you repent. It's got to be your choice, but he's given us every reason to, or leads us to repentance in the kindness he shows us every day by not judging us for the offenses we've committed against him. He's given us every reason to repent and turn to him. I think of this, I thought of this example back when I was 16 and a couple months after I first started driving, I was driving through Grants Pass, Oregon on like a one-way street and I was driving into the sun. And at the time I wouldn't have told you this, but I was driving more recklessly and I should have in that I was going over the speed limit and I was kind of playing the lights in that like they just would go one after another. So I was trying to hit the green lights And even though it was really hard to see, I wasn't like slowing down. I wasn't being careful because the sun was right in my face. And so I was coming up to this intersection and I lost sight of the light, which was green when I lost sight of it and just kind of assumed that it was gonna be green when I was in it. And right when I entered it, I caught sight of the light and it had turned red. And sure enough, there was a car coming out in front of me and I sidestriped him going about 35 And luckily him and his daughter were in the car and and they were okay. There weren't any injuries, but all that to say is I rightfully got a traffic citation for disobeying a traffic ordinance. And I had to go and I had to stand before the judge and the judge showed me mercy. He said, all right, well, you're a newer driver. You don't have any previous offenses. So I'm just gonna wipe this off your record. And that act of grace the act of mercy really changed my attitude. It made me want to repent of that, that, that just reckless driving and want to drive more carefully and not make the same mistake again. And so to an even, even greater degree, God has chosen to choose, show mercy against all of our offenses, past, present, and future against him. And that should change our attitude. It should make us want to live in that constant state of repentance and and do what he has for us, that kindness he's shown for us, amen? Amen. Now, Paul also goes on to make it clear in verse five that we should not mistake God's mercy as a sign of weakness or that somehow he's okay with our sins since he hasn't stricken us with judgment that we deserve for it yet. Because in the first coming of Jesus, God's love and grace was clearly and is clearly on display right now. But make no mistake, in the second coming of Jesus, 
for anyone that's an unbeliever, anyone that hasn't chosen to place their faith, faith in Jesus Christ and receive that free gift of forgiveness for their sins, they will have to stand before God and try to prove to him that they're perfect in their own acts, their own works, and they won't be, and they will have to face the wrath and judgment that sin deserves for their refusal to repent of it, including any, any of those that are self-righteously are treasuring their own actions and being right with God rather than treasuring the mercy that he's offered them freely through Jesus Christ, amen? All right, it says in verse six, it says, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness or they do what's not right according to his word, they will be wrath, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So we need to first understand what Paul is not saying here. He's not saying that somehow you can save yourself based off of works, okay? But he is saying that unbelievers will be judged based off of their works, all right? Remember that he's addressing the person that thinks that they aren't as bad as others and therefore good enough to be right with God through something they're doing in their own actions. So what Paul is saying here is that those people that are trying to place their faith in their own actions, they're going to get their chance to prove it as one day all unbelievers are gonna stand before the Lord, which includes those that think their works is what makes them right with God. And they will have to give an account of everything that they've done in their lives and nothing, remember, God knows your hearts, your motives. Nothing's gonna be hidden from God at that, that moment. All their actions, all their thoughts, all their motives. And if they're found blameless or of not committing one sin in anything they've said, anything they've done, anything they've thought in their mind, then yes, they will make it to heaven, which Paul has already pointed out is impossible, right? Because we're all guilty of some sin. And the one that is found guilty of sin will face the Lord's wrath and judgment. And he makes it clear, God's fair to all. The standard of justice applies to everyone, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. He's impartial. You know, one of the things that I hope the Lord develops someday at this church is a choir. Let me tell you why. Because <laughs> not all of us are as musically gifted in our singing to the Lord as other people. Some of us are vocally challenged, right? But here's the thing. We still love to praise the Lord, okay? I'm lumping myself in that category. I'm one of them, okay? But here's the thing. Even if you're vocally challenged, you can sing in a choir and the beauty of all the voices around you can drown out that dreadful voice, however bad it is, okay? I'm getting to a point here. So too in this world, people can be out of tune with God and his will for them and the way that they're living their lives, but against the background of all the horrible atrocities going on around them in this world, mistakenly think that they're all right and not that bad when comparing themselves to the people around them. But rest assured, the day is gonna come for anyone that's not been forgiven of their sin through faith in Jesus, where they are gonna have to stand before God and they are gonna give a solo performance. 
And at that moment, it's gonna be devastating because it's gonna become very clear how out of tune they were with his will for them in this life. There will be no comparing to other people. It goes on in verse 12 and it says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Paul referring to Gentiles there and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Paul speaking to Jews there. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So Paul reiterates here that both Gentiles and Jews alike who are guilty of sin will perish or face God's judgment. The Jews thinking that because they, God had revealed to them his word or gave them his word that they had heard the law, they were considered more righteous than the Gentiles. Hey, we have the law. God gave us the word, so his word, so we're more righteous than other people because he chose us to be his people. But God says here that having or hearing the law was not what made them right with God as the law was given through the Jews to show all people in this world what they had to do in their life to truly be righteous, perfect with God. You gotta do all these things to be righteous, all right? So God's righteous judgment was not going to be with held simply for hearing the word, but only if somebody could perfectly follow it, which nobody's capable of. Hence the law shows us, or the word of God shows us that no matter how hard you try, you need to be saved from your sin. And Jesus is the one God sent to do that. Now, Paul brings up a good principle that we should pay attention to here, not just in, in that, and you guys have heard me say this before, but I, I, it's something we need to remind ourselves of. Just because you're a hearer of the word does not mean you're a doer of the word, okay? You can sit here, and I'm, these are good things. I'm not saying they're bad, but you can highlight your Bible. You can say amen. You can write notes in your journal, but that does not mean that you don't leave here not doing those things that you agree with, okay? We're actually warned about this, this very thing. In James 1, 20 through 25, James says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. So what he's pointing out there is like, let's say you go to the mirror and you see that your hair is all messy. You just woke up, you got bedhead. What do you do? You take care of it then and there, right? You don't just walk away and like forget about it and go out the door looking like that. He's saying that would be crazy. He's like, if you hear the word of God and God convicts you or speaks to you or encourages you in something and says, do this, you're not doing this. Do it, like right now. Ask God to help you in the power of his Holy Spirit to do this thing. You need to make the change now. It's not like, oh, I'll get to it eventually. And the reason for it, he gives in the, in the last verse in 25, he says, so you can be blessed. Jesus says the same thing. How do you know if you're a doer of the word? James tells us there, and then Jesus says in eleven twenty eight, but even more blessed are those who hear the word of God and put into practice. In the Greek, blessed means happy. So if you're a doer of the word, what God says is you will be happy. What Paul, so what Paul's saying here is the self-righteous person, it, is, it isn't about what you hear, but rather you 
what you do that'll affect your life for the better. You might be hearing the word of God, but if you're living contrary to it in your life, you're not even experiencing the point of it. You guys realize this? And this is really, this is really important. I want you guys to listen to me, okay? Because this is, when you're reading this book, this is a fundamental principle to understand how to read it correctly. This is not a checklist for you to check the boxes of I'm doing this thing and I'm not doing this thing. Cool, I'm good with God today because I've done these things. That's not what this is for. Here's what I mean. What this proves is that there is no way you could do everything in here to be right with God. Because like I said, he demands perfect righteousness. So this list of things that it takes to be right with God, the only thing they prove to us is that we can never do it ourselves. We need to be saved from all the unright things we do. That's what this book proves to you and me. It proves our need for Jesus. It, it gives us a great understanding of God's love and grace for us and that he saved us from something we can never do ourselves, okay? Now, what this is here for is so that you know how to be happy in life. Because isn't that what we all want? We're all looking to be happy. And until God comes into our lives, we look for it in all the wrong places. And God says, this is how to be happy. And once I'm in your life, I can help you actually do these things so you can be happy. And that's so important to understand because, and you young people understand this with your parents, when somebody's just telling you, don't do this, don't do that, you're like, well, I'll take my chances, I'll figure it out. If that's the way you look at this, it's gonna be really hard to want to do what God says. But if you understand that, oh, this, God wants me to be happy. And this is what he says is gonna to lead to me being happy. It's not that you have to do it. Well, I wanna do it then. I wanna be happy. And this is how to do it. It's so important to understand that. And it's often a self-righteous or prideful attitude that somehow like mistakenly thinking that, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good with God. I'm better than other people. I've kind of got this Christian thing down that kind of can lead to us coming in here with a prideful attitude instead of a humble attitude. And when we hear the word of God taught, we get nothing. When we open our Bibles every day, we get nothing. Well, I know it all. I'm good. I'm, I, you know, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than them. I don't really need to know anything. No, no, no. We're all wretched apart from Jesus and we're all constantly works in progress. And that's the right heart to have when, we're, when you're in a Bible study, when you're opening your Bible, when you're coming to church. And when you have that right attitude, you come with this heart of like, all right, Lord, what is it that I need to not only hear, but I need to learn from you so I can do it in my life with your help? Because I want every bit of happiness you intend for me. And how, how many of us are happy all the time? None of us, right? I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 years, you're not happy all the time. I see it in you guys all the time. <laughs> I'm not happy all the time. And what that means is there's stuff for us to learn. If God intends for us to be happy and this is how to be happy and we're not happy all the time, there's stuff that we need to be doing that he's trying to teach us, amen? So we should be always ready to receive that and learn those things, okay? And since the Gentiles were just as guilty at breaking God's law, they too are accountable to face the judgment their sin deserves, despite not having been given God's word like the Jews. Paul going on to tell us why in the following verses. He says 
In verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Paul's here is saying that all people know the difference between right and wrong intuitively because God has written, or as it says here in verse 15, God's law is written on their hearts. Or basically God has given you morality, this being what we call a conscience. It's that thing in your head that tells you this is good and this is bad, all right? And people show this, by their actions, as verse 15 also says, or they prove this in their attempt to define what is right and wrong, which you can see in all cultures of the world all throughout history as all societies institute laws to govern themselves by, right? Now, what you also see displayed throughout humanity is a moral law of what is considered good and bad that is shared amongst all people. Now, it's important to understand that while that's true, what's also true that as mankind goes further and further away from God, they've corrupted and damaged their consciences through sin as we learned in Romans 1. And what that means is historically, you now see mankind or humanity approving of things that they once didn't. And they once were in line with God's word and saying these things are harmful, these things are bad. And as their consciences have been damaged, damaged, you see society start to embrace those things that once were called evil, but now are called good, okay? But some things still remain as absolutes, like morality rights. Like as far as you can go to any society in this world and murdering an innocent person is considered unacceptable, okay? Obviously it happens because of sin, but by and far, it's a shared morality that God has given us that that is an unacceptable thing that society condemns. And this sharing of moral values is also another proof of a creator because someone has to establish that morality for it to be there. Otherwise, it wouldn't be, okay? If we just came from a pile of goop, we wouldn't care about anything. So because of this morality ingrained in us, Paul says in verses 15 through 16, that when an unbeliever stands before God to give an account of their life, they cannot sit there and say, well, I never heard your word. I never heard your law as there is an internal word that God has placed inside of us that is enough to know what we should and what we shouldn't do in our lives. And we will be judged based off of our own conscience, which accuses or condemns us for violating law or theoretically excuses or justifies someone for obeying it, as verse 15 says. Now, Paul says a Gentile may by nature do what the law requires in verse 15, but in no way is he saying that they're capable of completely fulfilling the law because as I've already established, if everyone violates it in some way, the written law and the internal law God puts on our hearts. And Paul's saying that this judgment for violating one's conscience is part of the gospel in verse 16 as the good news is, you don't have to stand before God and give an account of your life and whether you obeyed your conscience or not if you've instead chosen to place your faith in Jesus Christ and receive the free gift of forgiveness. You've already received the righteousness that you needed to be right with God from Jesus Christ. 
who took the price of your sin on the cross. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel, okay? Verse 17, absolutely. says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Why, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. So the Jews had the law or God's written word and were, as I've said, self-righteous because of it, considering themselves better than others. And as such, they considered themselves qualified to tell other people how to live. Oh yeah, you shouldn't do that. Do this, do that. Again, not like in a way of wanting what's best for them, but in a self-righteous way, a condemning way of like, oh man, too bad you're not as good as me. You should really live like me, all right? And what Paul in essence is, is saying to them because of their hypocrisy in that they were preaching one thing, but they weren't even doing what they were preaching. They were living contrary to the word that they were preaching is that just because you have the correct information from God doesn't automatically mean you are justified before him if you aren't actually living it out in your life. And so if you're not living it out in your life, what business do you have to self-righteously or condemningly tell other people that they should be doing the things that you're not even doing? He's calling them out on that. And Paul confronts him on two specific things in verses 21 through 22, two sins that God himself called them out on. The first being stealing in verse 21 is Malachi 3. The Lord basically calls him out on the fact that under the law, they were supposed to be tithing to him. And he said, you guys are robbing me constantly. You're not giving me what I'm, a portion of what I'm giving you. And then he goes on and calls them out on their adultery in the, whole, the entire book of Hosea because he's basically saying, you guys are in an adulterous, adulterous relationship with your first love. I'm supposed to be your first love. The very first two commandments says, don't put anything above me. And you guys are worshiping all types of different things in this world ahead of me or putting these things above my life. So he calls them out on these two things or reminds them that, hey, God called you out on these two things and you're still doing these things. And this hypocrisy by the Jews in acting like they were better than everybody else for being followers uh, for being followers of God while at the same time blatantly violating the very law gave them to follow, actually dishonored God and made him look bad in front of the Gentiles, as Paul says in verse 23 or 24. Basically, it compromised their ability to be a witness for him. And that's what we gotta watch out for too. Christian, do not make the mistake of glorifying yourself in other people's eyes. Because when you fall, and I say when, because you will fall. Every one of us will mess up at some point. It's not an if, it's a when. But when we fall, if we're glorifying ourselves instead of glorifying God in the mercy and grace he's shown us, you're gonna compromise your testimony with people. You're gonna compromise your witness. Remember, we're not selling perfection. We're selling a, a perfect God who makes us perfect through faith in Jesus. And we're all very much works in progress. We're not telling people we have it all together. God has it all together. 
That's why we desperately need him to help us know how to put it all together. And he's the one that does that. And I'm not gonna stand here and say, I'm not gonna mess up because I am gonna mess up. But if you act self-righteous and like you're never gonna mess up, when you do, it's gonna give, especially the cynics and the the people that are already skeptical about Christianity, it's gonna give them the reason of like, yeah, look at those hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with that. And we don't wanna act that way. And that's what he's kind of warning them of here too. So he goes on, finish this chapter out. It says in verse 45, for circumcision, circumcision indeed is of value if, obey, if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision Jews? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written, have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul understood that a Jew's response would be like, wait a minute, I'm a descendant of Abraham, all right? Mic drop. You know who I am? That means I'm God's child. And to prove it, I'm circumcised, all right? I did what he said. So that means I'm good with God. Now, God instituted circumcision. And I'm not gonna go into that for you guys. You can figure it out, Google it. Um, Now, God instituted circumcision for the Jewish people is an identification that they were God's covenant people. And it was supposed to outwardly show what had happened on the inside of them in that, it illustrated what God intended to do with their flesh, like basically cut their flesh away so that they had his righteousness inside of them, all right? Yet even though the Jews were outwardly circumcised and they praised each other for being super spiritual because of it, as Paul says in verse 29, they were far from where God wanted them to be as demonstrated by their thoughts and their actions, the way they carried themselves. So what Paul is conveying in verses 25 through 29 is that Circumcision in itself was inconsequential regarding a person's righteousness before God because here's the reality. You can be circumcised and still break the law and be found deserving a judgment or you could be theoretically uncircumcised and not break the law and not be guilty of sin and not be found deserving judgment. The point of emphasis being that it doesn't matter what you're doing on the outside if the inside isn't where it should be, all right? You can do whatever you want on the outside and still be found unrighteous. And so that shouldn't be the focus. And that is, uh, that, that, that righteousness, that complete righteousness God demands, as we've already talked about, is only something that could come by God doing a work through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a gift that he gives us, okay? And we wanna take heed to that as well because we can make the same mistake And you see people do it all the time where in some churches, denominations that teach us incorrectly that somehow the thing you do outwardly like baptism or taking communion or some some denominations teach uh, like confirmation that somehow those things are what make you right with God when really those things are just outward expressions of what has supposed to transpired inside of you when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit came inside of you and you were born again. You were changed. And that's an outward expression of that, right? 
Think of it this way. Circumcision and baptism act the same as a label on a can. If I have a can full of beans, I can label it whatever I want, but it's not gonna change the fact that there's beans in that can, right? If I wanna change what's in that can, I gotta actually open it up, put something else in there, and then put the appropriate label on the outside. Well, here's the thing. When we're born again or we're changed by the Holy Spirit, baptism is the label God has placed on you to show what's happened inside of your life. Amen? All right? But if the contents of the can doesn't match the label, as in the case of the Jews, surely it's gonna become recognizable to other people around them. And so what Paul's trying to prove to them is like, hence, you guys need Jesus just like everyone else. Amen? All right. Well, as the worship team comes up here, I just wanna leave you guys with seven principles of God's judgment that were kind of just... Paul pointed out all throughout this that make it very clear that this is what our sin deserves in our life. In Romans 2.2, Paul tells us God's judgment is right because it's according to him knowing the truth about us. So God's judgment is right. In Romans 2.5, Paul tells us God's judgment is deserved as it's according to sin that is constantly accumulating in my life. So God's judgment is right and it's deserved. In Romans 2, 6, Paul tells us that God's judgment is just in that it is according to our works or what we have done right or wrong in our lives. So God's judgment's right. It's always deserved and it's always just. Fourth thing, in Romans 2, 11, Paul tells us that God's judgment is fair as it's impartial. So his judgment is right. His judgment of our sin is deserved. It's just and it's fair. The fifth thing in Romans 2.13, Paul tells us that God's judgment is earned as it is according to what we do and not by what we know. So his judgment's right, it's deserved, it's just, it's fair, it's earned. Sixth thing, in Romans 2.16, Paul tells us that God's judgment is revealing as it reaches the secrets of one's heart. You're not hiding anything from God. I'm not hiding anything from God. It reveals everything. So it's right, it's deserved, it's just, it's fair, it's earned, it's revealing. And in Romans 2.17 through 19, Paul tells us that God's judgment is always done in truth because it's according to reality rather than perceived religiosity. And when you really read this and understand these things, there should be only one thing, one conclusion that you can really come to when it guards, when, in regards to the sin that you have done, that you are doing, and that you're gonna do against God, and that is absolutely, 100%, without any argument, it deserves to be judged. And that penalty that he says later in Romans is the wages of sin is death. Not only physical death, that's how physical death came into this world through sin, but spiritual death or separation from God for all eternity because he can't be around unrighteousness. But instead of choosing to judge you, he's shown kindness because of his great love for you in showing you mercy, in mercy, in mercy, continued mercy, Instead of 
allowing you to stay separated for all eternity. He sent his one and only son who lived a life not deserving judgment, a perfect life on this earth and went to a cross that our sin deserved to be punished on and took the wrath as we looked at a couple weeks ago and took the judgment our sin deserved upon himself willingly for the joy that was set before him, for the thought of knowing that you through your faith in him would be forgiven of your sin and brought into a relationship with him for all eternity. That's what God did for you and me. Amen? And when you understand that, it should keep you in that perpetual place of repentance. Man, if God loves me that much, if he's been that kind to me, if he's been that merciful to me, surely anything he says has to be good for me. And I wanna experience every bit of that goodness in my life. I wanna experience that blessedness, that happiness. I don't wanna go anywhere near my sin. You become aware of sin in your life. Man, I wanna go away from that. I wanna go to God to help me with it. I don't wanna miss out on what his word says, on the, on the happiness he intends for me. I spent enough of my time trying to find it myself only to find destruction and harm. I want everything God has to save me from in life. And when you understand it, it also should keep you from having a self-righteous attitude towards others. Because you realize, as Paul said, I'm the greatest of all sinners. Man, I deserve to be struck down with judgment right now. And I'm just so stoked and thankful that he's forgiven me and that I'm right with him. And it's not based on how I do yesterday or how I did or how I do today or how I do tomorrow. It's all, I I can have a 100% assurance in knowing that I'm saved because it's all because of Jesus. And you're so stoked at it. You just can't wait to give everyone else that, that gift that free gift that God offers them so they can experience that same kindness. They can hear about that same mercy and they can be alleviated of the sin in their life. Amen? Amen? That's the good news. That's what Paul's trying to get through here. He's like, it's a horrible thing to live as you are, Jews, thinking that you have to earn your way to God. No, you can't earn your way to God. You don't need to. You keep failing and you don't need to live in that failure and the condemnation and the guilt that comes with it. Jesus paid the price for you. He gave you, yes, he gave you his word. It was so that you know you needed Jesus. And you can live in the kindness. You can live in his mercy. You can live in his grace. It's not about comparing yourself to anyone else because God thinks the world of you. And you can know that because of his son. That's who he sees. So we're gonna worship for that, among other things. We're gonna open up the communion tables, which is, Jesus told us to do to remember what he did for us for this reason, so we don't lose sight of how great great of kindness God's shown to us. So we're gonna reflect on that as we take communion on our own. We're gonna worship in response. And we'll have our prayer team around the room. If you guys need prayer for anything, if you're somebody here that this is the first time you're hearing this good news, or maybe it's, it's, you've heard it before, but you're like, that's me. I need to repent. I need to turn from the way I've been heading. I need to turn to God, towards God. I need his help with sin in my life. You can do that to, here today. And you can receive God's spirit inside of you. You can change whatever's inside of you and replace it with him and be born again. 
and leave this place a child of God with a relationship with him where you're gonna be with him from this point on for all eternity and have him to personally help you obey his word and lead you into that happiness you so desperately want. Don't wait till tomorrow to make that choice because you only get a chance to do it here on this earth and you don't know what tomorrow holds. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for sparing us from the judgment our sin deserves. Thank you for sending your son and his willingness to die for sin I did, not for anything he did wrong. And it's just hard to even say that and understand why. I I only, with what I can understand in my tiny little mind, I'm just so overwhelmed with gratitude for the grace that's been shown to me and my brothers and sisters. And Lord, I don't wanna ever become dull to that. I don't wanna ever lose sight of that. I don't wanna become insensitive to it, Lord. I I just want an even deeper understanding even now of the love you have as, as it's been displayed through what you've done for us. I'm so thankful that I can know that I am forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future because of the blood of Jesus. And that nothing can separate me as we're gonna read later in Romans from your love. Nothing can snatch us out of your hand. That we're yours from the moment we believe in your son for the rest of eternity, forever. Lord, be with us in this time. Maybe even give us just a fresh understanding of our salvation so that our our thankfulness for it can grow all the more, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.